Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Matt Delia is Confused. My guest this week, his name is Nir Eyal. Nir is a writer and he writes about technology and how to sort of make it work for us in the, in this modern world where, you know, everyone talks about these things are addictive. Our devices are taking up so much of our time. Uh, people don't know how to focus anymore and all this stuff. And this is sort of Nier's subject of expertise. I've been aware of Nier for a while. He has a new book out called Indistractable, which I read. And I, I just – I really wanted to talk to him about it. There's a lot of stuff that sort of resonated in it for me. Um, I often think, why the fuck can I put this fucking thing down in regards to my phone? Um, and you know, I'll do that thing where like, I'll pull out my phone to, 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 I ostensibly to check my email and suddenly I've spent like 30 minutes on Safari or Twitter or something, you know, or on Wikipedia or some shit, just looking up stuff I don't need to know. Um, so I really wanted to have just, just a, a conversation with, with someone about this and near is an expert and experts are good. <laughs> I love experts. Uh, yeah. And so Nir was cool enough to come on the show, give us his time. And it was a really great conversation. And I'm happy you guys get to hear it now. Um, so yeah, here is my conversation with Nir Eyal. Okay. what I, I would call a behavioral designer, meaning that I use consumer psychology and behavioral economics to shape consumer behavior through the products we use. So I work with companies that are trying to build healthy habits uh, through technologies, through various technologies. And so that was the subject of my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And I also help people shape their own behavior by understanding consumer psychology principles. Uh, and so my second book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And that's all about how do we make sure that we can uh, be the kind of people who live with personal integrity. It's about doing whatever it is you say you're going to do uh, and to make sure that you don't get sidetracked by whatever distractions might come your way. Right. I feel like... The subjects that you dive into, I mean, I read Indistractable. I've read your work in The Atlantic too. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with with the things you have to say, and a lot of it is super, super helpful. All of it extremely 
interesting. And I think even more than that, it's, it's to make a distinction, it's, it's of interest. I think it's, it's on everyone's mind, this idea specifically of how do I not let tech invade my life in ways that I don't sort of authorize it or something, you know, because I feel like so many people that I'm around, even just my peers in a sort of non sort of scientific way, I've gathered so, so many people have this very same complaint. The ways they deal with it are very different. Some people just, you know, quit Facebook or something or, or something extreme like that. But, but I feel like Mm -hmm. nobody really knows what to do. And, and you're proposing things to do to, to help. And in your experience, like how, just to start it, how, how helpless do you think people are if they're not sort if they have their blinders on and they're not sort of aware of the time suck that, that is maybe in front of them that's happening in their life? Well, I, I want to, so part of the reason I wrote this book is that I think there is uh, a lot of hysteria out yes. there that, yes. uh, that a lot of folks are saying, oh, it's all technology's fault. Technology's doing it to us. It's melting our brain. It's hijacking yes. our brain. It's addicting everyone. That's rubbish. And in fact, it's exactly the same rhetoric, like verbatim down to the word level <laughs> of what people said about comic books, right. about what people said about Dungeons and Dragons, about what people said about rock and roll music and rap music and television and video games. The list goes on and on and on. So right. to put this in historical perspective, we have always had these moral panics about whatever latest technologies we seem to be engaging in. Uh, and the, and with the course of time, we realized, wait a minute, we didn't do this stuff because it was hijacking our brain. We did it because it was fun, right? <laughs> right, 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 entertaining. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, and there's a big, big difference that we can get into in terms of the of the pathology of addiction versus liking something a lot, right? And what we find is that, in fact, you know, to answer your question of you know how helpless are people really, this is really what I want to fight against because right. the irony here is that by people believing. This nonsense that it's addicting everyone, that it's hijacking our brains, we are making it true. Right. And this is called learned helplessness. Yeah. That when you believe there's nothing you can do about a problem, you stop trying. Right. You say, oh, my kids, they're acting crazy because, you know, Fortnite's got them all addicted or, you know, Facebook, the algorithms, whatever. Right. And you stop trying to do something about the problem. So if you if you ask me how big of a problem is this? It's a problem if you believe mm. you're helpless. Mm. And there's, there's many, many studies that show this. Uh, we can dive into some of the research. Uh, but that's, that's a big reason why I wrote the book is to dispel some of these myths. But I will say that you know, even though technology uh, – sorry, even though distraction is not a new problem. Mm-hmm. I mean Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we all have to do things against our better interests. Even though this is not a new problem, I will say – that in this day and age where technology is so pers- pervasive and so persuasive, if you are looking for distraction, then distraction you will find. Mm. No doubt about it. Like if you are susceptible to it and you don't know what to do about it, then you know the chances are high that, that somebody's going to get you. Not just the big bad tech companies, but your boss, your kids, the news, right? Goddamn right. whatever's going on right, in the world right, right. is going to get your attention. If you don't have tools and tactics to make sure that you decide what you want to do with your life, as opposed to someone else constantly uh, manipulating your attention and your time. Right. I, I, the the piece you wrote in The Atlantic about comparing it to Reefer Madness sort of resonated specifically mm-hmm. for me. I mean, because I, I just as sort of a 
unstudied and certainly before I read uh, Indistractable, I, I sort of I was a bit <clears throat> sort of conflicted about it because I, I feel like any day just to bring it to a, the personal before we jump into like the specifics and the studies and the research, I feel like if I have a if I have a day that I uh, full of things that I know I have to do, I'm not mm -hmm. going to get pulled in to sort of any kind of time suck where I'm slipping and I find myself, you know, 45 minutes on Instagram without realizing or something like that, you know, yeah, is the yeah. days where I, cause I'm a writer and I work from home. And so mm -hmm. there are certainly days for me where I, I know I have to work, but there's no like specific set thing. And I, and I, and that is when I'm really going to slide off, potentially slide off the rails and sort of invite, but that, that, that brings up sort of what you talk about with triggers and stuff where it's, where it's this idea that like, there's this discomfort about what am I going to work on? What am I going to do? How am I going to do yeah. this? And then I sort of pull out the phone because it's easier like anything else, you know, being a smoker, it's something that I can sort of identify as something very similar there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a lot there. So let me, let me just kind of get everyone up to speed because you, you've obviously dove into the yeah. book and, and I appreciate that, that, that you really absorbed it, but l maybe a good place to start uh, is to understand what is distraction. Right. Uh, words really matter here. So, you know, to understand distraction, we have to understand the opposite of distraction. And so the opposite of distraction, if mo if you ask most people, they'll say it's focus, mm -hmm. but it's not focus. Right. In fact, if you look at the entomology of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction, that both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, right. things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can become traction. Whatever it is that you plan to do with intent, as long as it, you do it on your schedule, not on somebody else's schedule, right. is wonderful. That's traction. And so this absolves us of this ridiculous hierarchy that you know parents and grown-ups like to inflict on people that says, oh, you know, you spending time on, on Instagram or Candy Crush or playing <laughs> a video game, that's frivolity. That's mm -hmm. silliness. But me – spending time watching football mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, doing whatever thing I think is worthy of my time, watching Fox News or whatever. Oh, that's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's ridiculous. Yeah. Anything that you plan to do with your time is totally fine. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. The problem is when we get off track from the things we wanted to do. That's really the problem of distraction. So back to the definition of distraction. So the big two insights, anything can become traction. And anything can become a distraction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, many people, when we sit down to do a hard task, like, you know, we're both writers, so I'm sure you've experienced this. Mm. I used to do this all the time back when, before I wrote this book. I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I'm going to work. Now I'm going to write. I'm going to do that, that hard thing I've been putting off right after I check email. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right after I just Google something real quick. Right. Yeah. Let me just catch up on the news or whatever it might be. And that seems productive. Right. Right. I need to check email eventually. That's kind of a good thing to do. It's kind of worky. Yeah. No, it's pseudo work. Right. Because if that's not what you plan to do with your time, it is also a distraction. And what happens is if we don't make this distinction, we constantly get sucked in 
by the urgent mm. and we leave no time for the important. Right. We're yeah. reacting all day long as opposed to allowing any time for reflection. And so that's the real problem is when we get off track. So, okay, we got traction, we got distraction. Mm -hmm. Now let's go back to what you asked about earlier around these internal triggers and external triggers. So what leads us to traction or distraction are two things. We have external triggers. So these are the pings, the dings, the rings, things in our environment mm -hmm. that prompt us to traction or distraction. And then we have what's called the internal triggers. And it turns out that the real source of most distraction in our day, of course, some of them do come from the pings and dings, you know, right. things in our environment, but most distraction does not start outside us, but rather most distraction starts from within. Yeah. And so this is a really, really important concept to understand because look, if we want to understand the answer to Plato's question 2,500 years ago of why do we do things against our better interest? Right. What is the nature of a karasia? We have to understand kind of really base level understanding a root, um, uh, you know, base level of what is the source of all human behavior. Mm -hmm. Why do we do everything that we do? Right. And so it turns out that, you know, most people have a misconception of what drives human motivation. Most people will tell you that motivation is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. That if you look in the brain, what is actually happening neurologically is that we have two separate systems. We have the wanting system and the liking system. Mm. The liking system makes us feel good in order to make a memory that the wanting system makes us crave. But the wanting system drives us to do things by making us feel discomfort. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even when you shut down the liking system in the brain, sorry, if you shut down the liking system in the brain, that is, if the wanting system is enabled, that's what drives our behavior. Mm. That's the more important in terms of the final uh, processes that makes us do anything we do. So how does this play out in, in, in real life? Well, you know, physiologically, if you feel uncomfortable, your body gets you to do something. Mm -hmm. So if you feel cold, you put on a jacket. If you feel hot, you take the jacket off. If you are hungry, you feel hunger pangs, so you eat. And when you're stuffed, oh, that doesn't feel good, you stop eating. <laughs> So that's how it works physiologically, and the same thing holds true psychologically, that when we are lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we are uh, bored, we check the news, sports scores, Pinterest, Reddit, YouTube. We use these things for psychological relief of uncomfortable emotional states. So that means if all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. Mm. That if we are not doing what it is we want to do with our time, if we're not living the kind of lives we want to live, it's because there's some kind of uncomfortable emotional sensation that we are escaping from through distraction. Mm -hmm. And if we don't face that fact, then we will always become distracted by something, as people have always been distracted by one thing or another. Right, yeah. I mean, that... Framing it like that is it makes to, to someone who's, you know, had and you write about this in the book as well. You compare it a lot to actual physical addictions. And I feel like it makes it so easy to understand when you approach it that way, when you sort of frame it in this sort of physiological way. And then, you know, because that's so relatable. I mean, when I just think about when do I need or feel like I need a cigarette? When do I want most want a cigarette? Mm -hmm. I it's it's this physical thing. And I find that when I'm doing things, the, the same thing sort of with my phone, it's like this, it's this unconscious bubbling up 
and then it's like, oh, I want to, I want a cigarette because that's what I do when I have this feeling of this unconscious bubbling right. up, and that's that discomfort. Right. It's the same exact thing when I pull out my phone to go onto Instagram that's and I'm right. not planning on it, you know? Right, but the, but the reasons why I think are fascinating. So there's a lot of, of of studies I cite in the book that come from the the research around addiction. Right. Even though I think for the vast majority of people, uh, their phones are not an addiction. Right. Maybe they're a distraction, but for the vast majority of people. Uh, it's not an addiction. Some people are pathologically addicted to their phones, but I think that's a tiny, tiny percentage. Mm. The vast majority of us are not addicted. We're distracted. Uh, but I draw upon some of the similar research because, you know, if, if, if you can find techniques that are effective to help people stop uh, smoking or stop a heroin addiction, something that is incredibly addictive, you know, there's a, there's something crossing the blood brain barrier, right. right? We have to remember we're not, we're not freebasing Facebook. <laughs> we're not injecting Instagram here. We're, right. we're not snorting Snapchat. We got, we got to put this stuff in perspective. <laughs> if you can understand what's going on, then, and, and, and you can find techniques that are effective with the hard stuff like smoking, like heroin, then we can use some of those similar tactics to help us put these distractions in their place. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, we know that a lot of the, the common advice around abstinence really makes the problem worse. Uh, that we know that when, when you tell yourself, don't do something, right. that in many ways only accentuates the harm done and, and perpetuates the habit. So uh, you know, it's almost like the metaphor I like to use is a rubber band. So if you have a, a rubber band between your fingers and you stretch it out a bit and then you pull it in the middle and so you stretch it out and it gets really tight and you pull it and you pull it and you pull it and you pull it. If you keep pulling it, eventually it gets really hard to to maintain a grip on it. And if you let it go, it doesn't go back to where it started. Mm -hmm. It ricochets out, right? Right. And so that's what happens when it comes to these behaviors that we tell ourselves don't do, mm -hmm. like don't smoke, don't pick up your phone. When we, or, or for me, I used to be clinically obese. It was don't eat that. Right, right, right. And so when we do that, when we finally release that rubber band, remember going back to this principle that we talked about of, of that all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. Well, if I'm telling myself, don't do it, 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 don't do it. okay, fine, do it. <laughs> the relief of that discomfort is itself pleasurable. Uh... So most smokers, when they stop and actually experience a sensation of the cigarette smoke, the vast majority of them actually don't rate it as pleasurable. Yeah. They don't like the smell. They don't like what it does to them. They, they don't like it. What they, the reason they smoke, it turns out, in terms of, of fomenting this addiction, of course, there's a chemical component as well that is, is not super well understood. But what is super well understood is that we, we reinforce this neural circuitry by telling ourselves, no, 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 okay, fine. Right. That itself is is registered in the brain and remembered as pleasurable. Right. And right. that's, that's really the, the source of this addiction. So the, the, there's a great study I talk about in the book around the flight attendants. Yeah. I love that one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. About this, this study. You want me to talk about that? A bit? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Please. Yeah. That sure. one stood out to me as particularly resonant for sure. Yeah. 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 So there's this wonderful study done of uh, two sets of flight attendants and one set of flight attendants, they were, they were all smokers. All the flight attendants in this study were smokers. And one set of flight attendants went from Tel Aviv to London. It's about a three-hour flight. The other group of flight attendants went from London, uh, sorry, from Tel Aviv to New York, and that's about an eight-hour flight. And they asked these flight attendants to, to every 30 minutes write down their level of craving for a cigarette. 
And you would think if the, the chemical hypothesis of addiction is correct, then as the brain metabolizes nicotine, the cravings should reoccur. Right? Right. That's kind of the popular notion mm-hmm. that you, know, you have a nicotine hit and then your, your, your body metabolizes it and then you need another one. Right. So you would expect, according to this theory, that after the same amount of time elapsed, both groups would be jonesing for a cigarette after the same amount of time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, that, so, for example, you know, three hours, three and a half hours, oh, man, they both really, really crave a cigarette. Right. But that's not what happened. What happened was, in fact, that the level of craving that both groups registered spiked not after a certain amount of time elapsed, but before a certain time was left until they could smoke. Right. So when the group of flight attendants landed in London, they ranked their cravings highest 30 minutes before they could get off the plane and smoke. Meanwhile, the flight attendants who were high above the Atlantic Ocean on the way to New York, they reported no cravings. Right. Why? Because in that airplane, uh, you know, 30,000 feet above the Atlantic Ocean, they could not smoke. It was off limits. They would have been fired right. or maybe gone to jail if they had lit up a cigarette in the middle of a flight. Right. Both flight attendants experienced the highest amount of craving 30 minutes before they could smoke. Why? Because that's when they started entering this internal dialogue in their brains telling themselves, okay, a few more minutes, a few more minutes, a few more minutes. Okay, get off the goddamn plane already, people. I got to smoke. Yeah. That's when that rumination took over and they wanted this thing so bad and it was only seconds away from when they could partake in it. Right. And so if that reframing, right, if it's as simple as putting people on a plane changes their level of craving for something as addictive as nicotine, yeah. why can't we reframe the way we look at distraction? And we certainly can. That's so uh, on two levels. That's super. That one stuck with me, and I I think the reason is because it stands out as something that kind of, as you're saying, sort of goes against what we think about what addiction is. You know, we think, as you say, we smoke, it, it, we metabolize the nicotine, and then however x amount of time later, we want another one. But and that that alone is what I I think too. I mean, even as a smoker, that's what, how I think it works. But even, you know, anytime I'm on a plane, I'm reminded that it doesn't work that way. I had a friend, I flew to Australia and back recently, and I, fr- I had a friend ask me how hard it is because I'm a smoker, how long that flight is so long from LA to Australia. And I, and I, and I hadn't really thought about it, but I remembered it, it was the easiest 14 hours without a cigarette I've had in forever. The only time wow. I thought about wanting one was as we're landing. And then it's like, yeah. I, and then once, once I have the power to walk outside, then it's like, okay, now I don't want to look for my bag. I just want to go straight yeah. to the exit, have my cigarette, come back and get my bag. It's like this totally. Yes. And so it resonated completely. And I, it's hard kind of to wrap my head around because we think of addiction as sort of working like, like clockwork, but it's, it's so much more complicated than that. And also, you know, addiction or non-addiction, I think it's, it's true of our tech as well. You know, if I don't have my phone on me, I don't think about the things that my phone brings me. And I'm not really panicked about checking the things that I, you know what I mean? I, I have such this, it's this different experience when I don't have my phone with me. When I do, I pull it out. I don't even think about it. I don't need to check it, but I do. It's just there. So it's, it changes everything. I mean, you talk about in your book too, about how just it being in, in sight, almost in your line of sight makes, makes you, it makes it harder to focus on the thing that you're doing. 
And I find all of this very interesting because it's sort of reconfiguring the way I think about why I either overuse something, use something, what I deem to be too much, all of these things, whether it be an addiction or my phone or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, it's so cool to hear that you've kind of confirmed this experience for yourself. And a lot of this isn't actually uh, fully conscious, right? The fact that yeah. you somehow registered in your brain, no, I can't smoke on this 14 hour yeah. flight. It cannot happen. I don't even know if you had that conversation. You probably didn't have that conversation. I didn't. Once but I'm in the air, yeah. Right, but somehow your brain registered that fact. I mean, this this goes back to why placebos are so effective. Mm-hmm. Even when people know they're getting a placebo, they still have the placebo effect. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, and so and there's there's so there's a lot going on subconsciously. Uh, but I would argue that that recognition of the fact that addictions, the way we think about addiction is is so skewed, mm-hmm. uh, is so wrong in society these days. I mean, we still have leftovers from the Nancy Reagan years, of right. just say no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's really not helpful. Uh, it turns out. And, and unfortunately I think that same mentality has come back with a vengeance when it comes to tech use. And it's so ironic to me, you know, in the time when we are legalizing cannabis, yeah. we're freaking out over tech addiction. Yeah. Why? That's ridiculous. I mean, I used to say what, before I was, I was informed about what the research really says is going on. I used to say that technology is the cigarette of the century. Ian Bogos first said this. And uh, so I used to repeat it because it, it's very catchy. Right. It's not true. Yeah. It's not true. If anything, technology is more like cannabis. Right. So we all know that cannabis unlike heroin, unlike cocaine, unlike uh, nicotine, does not have anything chemically addictive in it. Agreed? We, we all know this, yes. right? That there's, no, there's nothing in cannabis by itself that's, that's addictive in the same way as these other, as other drugs. That's why it's being legalized right. around the world these days. And yet, if that's true, how do we explain the fact that 9% of people who smoke cannabis have what's called a cannabis use disorder? Right. Right? And we, we know these people. We know these people who really just overdo it. They, they, they can't stop. They are functionally addicted to cannabis. Well, how can that be? How can someone be addicted to something that is not chemically addictive at all? Right. Well, it's because an addiction is never just about the substance. There are, it's always a confluence of three things. The product certainly plays a role. The product has to be an analgesic. It has to be something that solves pain. Right. But the fact is, if anything solves pain and it's used by a sufficiently large number of people, someone is going to get addicted to it. Mm. I mean, people – I wrote an article in The Atlantic about how some people get addicted to Q-tips. This is no <laughs> joke. There are people out there who are literally addicted to Q-tips. Uh, people get addicted to sniffing glue. People get addicted to Tylenol. Anything yeah. that solves pain is going to chemically addict someone. Why? Because addiction is a confluence of three things. The product, the person, meaning a person's predilection for addiction, and it turns out there's, there's always something going on. If you talk to folks who have dealt with, with people who suffer from addiction, uh, there's usually some severe trauma. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, we think there might be a genetic component. OCD, turns out obsessive compulsive disorder, has a very high comorbidity with people who suffer from addiction disorder. And then third, and one thing that is not discussed enough, is the pain. Yeah. So it's the product, the person, and the pain. And how do we know that pain plays such an important role? And what does that mean? It means that when people are going through particular times in their life where they can't cope with what's going on, they can't cope with that discomfort, sometimes it's perfectly rational to get the hell out of your head. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like, you know, if I was homeless, 
I, I would do drugs. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I would. Yeah. Because being on the street is terrifying. Yeah. How do you get any sleep? How do you how do you survive? Right. Without a substance, and we know this from, from there's been some fascinating studies done during the Vietnam War, that uh, you know a third of Americans uh, who served in Vietnam reportedly were using heroin or some kind of addictive substance. Mm-hmm. And so the Nixon administration, this is actually why the DEA was started. The Nixon administration believed that we'd have this whole generation of junkies coming back from Vietnam who would keep you know looking for heroin when they came back home, right. and that's not what happened. Yeah, it was oh, it was a single digit percentage of people who kept using. Uh, very much in line with the percentage of people who 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 use of the general population from these veterans, same proportion kept using. Everybody just suddenly lost their heroin addiction. Why? Because they left the hellscape of the Vietnam War. They right. didn't need to get out of their heads because they had a supportive family, they had community, they had jobs, they had something they had to do with their lives. They didn't need to escape the 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 horror that was the Vietnam War. Right. And we don't talk about that component enough. And so we just love to blame the substance. Mm-hmm. It's the heroin that addicts you. It's the, the 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 bottle. It's the Facebook that addicts you. And it's such a it's such an unscientific view of what's really going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, when we when we were talking earlier about, you know, it being sort of labeled as as addictive and this sort of scourge in the way that Reefer Madness labeled marijuana a scourge. I is do you think that it that that is sort of a a, a a, because it's just an easier thing to say, you know, it's an easier soundbite, like these things are addicting us or taking our energy away. But I, I feel like it also is kind of uh, a generational thing. Do you know? Like, I feel like people that grew up without tech, they, they, their selves are formed without tech. And mm. they look back on a younger generation and, and it's almost the thing that you, that, it's the most age old thing, actually, you know, it's almost like a joke. Well, in my day, we didn't do it like this. And it, it feels like, like when I hear Trey Dowdy talk about tech and the things that he needs, that he wants to do to curb the tech companies, it feels so reactionary in this mm. specifically generational way that you sort of talk about with Reefer Madness and all that stuff. It's like, it, it it's almost like, because it's A, not understood and B, something that's like newer on the scene yeah. or for younger that younger people tend to be doing it's almost labeled a scourge and it's it's this it's this and it's it's almost like an enemy of the people when in reality it's obviously much more complicated than that but i think that that sort of sets it down the wrong path for the wrong conversation you know yeah i mean i, I couldn't agree more i think there's a confluence of this perfect storm happening that one uh the media is scared to death of these new technologies. Let's remember, for every article that the New York Times publishes uh, that says, you know, technology is melting your brain, Mm -hmm. um, they're doing that because that's their competition. Right. I mean, as much as we say, oh my God, you know, Facebook's business model is to incentivize you to use Facebook more. Well, of course, (laughs) what do you think the New York Times business model is? They also sell ads. They are also attention merchants and they're scared to death because these these tech companies are bleeding traditional journalism. Yeah. So that it's a competition, yeah. right? And so every journalist is scared. And I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm not making any judgment in terms of whether this is good for society, bad for society. That's a whole other question. Sure. But clearly they are competitors for your eyeballs. Right. Second thing that's happening, I think, is that um, the the we like this story a lot as consumers. 
this is called motivating reasoning Mm -hmm. that when you call something an addiction, there's a pusher, there's a dealer, there's mind control. And we like that explanation a whole lot Yeah. because if you call it what it really is, a distraction, yeah. Oh man, now I got to do something. About yeah. It. Yeah. It's a responsibility Crap. thing almost. Yeah. 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 Damn it. <laughs> right. Now I got to do something about it. I wanted to just blame those tech companies. Totally. It's a soundbite that is so easy to understand. Oh, they're addicting you. Done. Yeah. You know, that side takes people three seconds to understand. Mm-hmm. My side takes you maybe 30 seconds to understand. <laughs> you have to think for just a little bit. And this is why I love doing podcasts because podcasts are listened to by people who want the whole story. Right. They want new ones. But I, I think, unfortunately, you know, the traditional media, the, the, news, the newspapers primarily, uh, or, or you know, cable television, they want the soundbite. They don't have time to talk about an issue the way we do. Yeah. And that's something that people can really easily digest. And it's a story we want to hear. We want to believe that there's nothing we can do, so why even try? Right. And then third, and I, and I don't, I don't you know, I'm, this is the one I'm most shaky on. Part of me thinks that maybe the tech companies like this. Mm. Yeah. Maybe the tech companies understand that because I've been really surprised that, you know, a, a lot of if, if you talk to neuroscientists, if you talk to addiction experts, they'll tell you what I'm telling you because, you know, I've spent the past five years talking to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll tell you a more nuanced view of, look, it's never as simple as the technology. It's never as simple as, as the drug or the product. There's always more going on. But you don't hear that too much from the tech companies. The yeah. tech companies aren't saying, we, you know, we're not addictive. And part of the reason I think maybe why is because they know it benefits them. Mm. Right. Because when we teach people learned helplessness, we talked about earlier, when people think, oh, there's nothing I can do. These companies actually become more powerful. Yeah. And that's the irony of ironies. Right. That's that's the real, you know, kick in the ass here. By believing this crap, we are making it true. (laughs) Whereas believing what I'm saying, which is actually, you know what? We can do something about this. It's not that hard. Right. (laughs) Right? I'm telling you exactly what to do about it from an insider's perspective. I know how these products are built, and I'm telling you, they're good, right? They can persuade, but they're not that good. They're way more powerful. But that's not a message that I, I wonder if, if if the tech companies actually want to get out there. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually so interesting. The idea that there's this boogeyman created, whether it's by them or not, that they don't sort of deny because it helps business. Because if if what I mean, what you're saying, yeah, that totally makes sense. It's just such a mind fuck to think of it that way. You know, it's almost like we tell ourselves this thing that isn't true that vilifies you know facebook and the rest and all of that is only helping them that that's an ultimate sort of it's hard to think about but that's so true because when we give up responsibility when we give up our ability to have a say in a thing it's the end. That's already the end. You know, I mean, it's the same thing with addiction. If I, if I say, well, I can't quit smoking, I'm literally never going to quit smoking. You know, Um, if I think, well, I heard that that guy did it like that and she did it like that, then I'll have the options and I'll think about ways that I can stop. And then it's like, well, now it's on me. But, but Mm -hmm. I feel like what you're saying, that's, that's, that that's extremely interesting. And I think true. I mean, that makes sense. It's just, it's hard to sort of contend with because it's like okay well how it seems like such a big thing how do we start wrapping our arms around it you know yeah yeah well one of my favorite quotes is by benjamin franklin who said when everyone thinks the same no one's thinking yeah yeah and i think that's exactly what's going on i mean i think we see something very similar happening in the in the cigarette industry when we think about all the press 
that e-cigarettes are getting yeah. for you know supposed harm that's being done. And I'm not a proponent. I'm not saying anyone should start smoking e-cigarettes, but unequivocally, yeah. e-cigarettes are way better right. than the tobacco, yeah, right, yeah. than burning tobacco, yeah, and yet. You know, when was the last time you hear, heard about all the deaths caused by traditional cigarettes? No, it's the scary new technology of an e-cigarette. That's the bad guy. And the people who want to make money on e-cigarettes, yeah. those are the bad guys. We're talking about, you know, a thousand deaths as yeah. opposed to hundreds of thousands of deaths created by by the last generation of technology with burning, you know, burning tobacco. Yeah. And so there's always this warped perspective of what makes, you know, the, the news media looks for stories that are – uh, that are new, that yeah. are surprising. Uh, nobody wants to talk about a boring story like, yep, you know, tobacco is still killing way more people than it should. You know, if we could move people to this better technology of e-cigarettes. Now, of course, we need to be careful about people not starting to smoke because of e-cigarettes. Of so I, I am in support of limiting flavored, you know, e-cigarettes, things like that. But we also need to make sure that we realize, look, this is a huge upgrade. This is way better than than the last generation of technology. But that story is kind of not really told. Uh, and I think a similar story is not being told about about distraction. You know, Paul Virilio, the philosopher, said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck. Mm. And so there is no doubt that these technologies have done some bad things. Mm -hmm. No doubt when it comes to election interference, data mining, lots of bad shit going on. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But we can't go overboard and and only look at the dark side, only look at the negativity that, of what's going on. This is this is using what's called a negativity bias, our tendency to only look at the bad stuff, because what that disables us from doing is inventing the next generation of technology to fix the current generation of technology. So when was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? Never. Yeah, it's been a minute. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because because why did we stop sailing ships? No, we made ships better. Right. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It's already happening that we are adopting new technologies. And that's a big part of what I advocate for in the book is that, look, we can hack back yeah. these tools. There are so many free technologies out there that we just have to start using that can hack back tools like Facebook, like Instagram, like YouTube. We can morph these products to serve us as opposed to us serving them. But again, if we believe we can, that has to be the first step. Yeah. The the e-cigarette uh, craze, the anti-e-cigarette craze in the media has, has particularly confused me. And it's specifically for the reason you're saying, and I haven't heard anybody say what you just said, which is so true. And I say this as a smoker of classic regular cigarettes. It's like those new ones are way better for people who are trying to quit and getting off of the regular cigarette. And also they kill so many less people. So what is the problem even? Like I, I don't even understand, but you're totally right. It's the new thing. And nobody wants to click on an article about how cigarettes kill you. People groan. People think they already know that. And it's just probably going to depress them. But when there's this new boogeyman, it's right. so much more exciting and you're liable to click. I mean, I did, right. you know, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, exu I'm not exempting myself from that at all. You know? No, no. I, so I think that the approach is a harm based approach as opposed to a fear based approach. You right. know, the fact is if we make it harder for people, for smokers to get access to e-cigarettes, we are making it more likely they will die. Yeah. Right. We want them, people who are already smoking tobacco uh, to, to convert over if, if you know, we want to make that as easy as possible right. because we know it reduces harm. Uh, and the same goes with with our technologies. You know, this this is kind of the 
a, a huge problem in the addiction community. You know, we, we, we know that methadone is much more effective than going cold turkey when, when someone is, is quitting heroin. Mm-hmm. And yet nobody wants to open methadone clinics. Yeah. Because we have this ethic that you're either addicted or you're clean, you're sober, right? It's one or the other, mm-hmm. but that's not reality. Yeah. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous, the most successful addiction rehab program that we know of, the one that everybody knows of, their success rate is about 12%. Yeah. 12%, that's yeah. it. You know what the most effective treatment program in the world is? Aging out. Yeah. Time. Time when people go in the, through their lives and they say, you know what? I think I've had enough of this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm going to cut back. I'm going to I'm going to stop doing this thing. Their life changes, their responsibility changes, maybe they get control of some source of pain that they've been trying to escape. They have greater agency in their life and so they stop doing these things that harm them. Yeah. That is much of the that is how most people quit or dial back. Uh, but we have this mindset that you know it's it's one or the other. It's black and white. And so we don't look at this but if you talk to addiction experts, this is what people recommend. It's 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 called harm minimization, harm reduction, rather than just cold turkey abstinence, which which tends not to work. Right. I mean, even the even the black and white version of it that you're saying you're either addicted or you're not, and there's no gray area. Even right. that is sort of this avoidance of discomfort because it's so much harder to think of it in this on this wide, conf- more confusing, complex spectrum than it is. Well, you're either an addict or not. You either use drugs or you don't. It's like this very – it's a lot easier and simpler, especially to someone who doesn't have any addiction problem, at least in this arena, to think of it that way because it's it's much easier to swallow, you know, and it's just black and white. File that thought away. That's that, you know, and I think it's it's this wider problem, almost the thing that you were talking about earlier, which is like this this – we're constantly running from discomfort, you know, and fig- trying to figure out ways without even realizing it to avoid it. And I think something that you talk about a lot in the book, and uh, it's 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 very, I think, very valuable to keep in mind, especially reading your book. It's sort of, and I'd like to think I can keep this in mind moving forward. But this idea of this discomfort trigger, where mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. inside me, and the thing that I'm going to do that uh, that I would consider what I don't want to do, whether that be smoking or wasting time on this or that, to remember that it's actually inside of me and not because my phone is close. Do you know what I mean? Right. And I feel like I feel like that rewiring is the most essential one. It's kind of it's the one that reconfigures it in real time right away in front of your face and it's just it's a responsibility thing though. And I think that that is the hard part. I mean, do you, do you find, is there any like resistance, um, in this space of like insisting that it actually is the boogeyman? Do you run into that at all? Like, do you, do you run into this thing where actually people will push back on you and say, well, no, it's actually the tech companies. And because I find that to be so entrenched, these people who are convinced that, They're doing everything they can to manipulate your mind, and it's their yeah. fault. Right. But you can't go anywhere with that. You can't do anything right. about that. Yeah. And, and look, the dichotomy, or, or I, always, I should say the complexity uh, and the nuance here is that something cannot be your fault but could still be your responsibility. Right. It's not your fault that Facebook exists. It's not <laughs> your fault that the iPhone exists. You didn't invent Netflix, right? Yeah. You didn't invent smoking tobacco. That's not your fault. 
but it is our responsibility. Yeah. Because what other choice do we have? Are we going to sit here and wait right. for these companies to stop making these products? Do we want to live in a society? You know, as, as terrible as, as cigarettes are for public health, as terrible as alcoholism is for public health, I don't want to live in a society without these things. Right, yeah. No, a free society is one where people can make their own decisions. Yeah. And if you want to smoke, that's your prerogative, right? I don't want to live in a society where we have Big Brother making these choices. Just in the same way, I don't want social media regulated by by the government. Who says they know any better than Facebook, yeah. right? Is, are we going to let them regulate these companies? So if the geniuses in Washington uh, aren't going to do it, if if we're not going to wait for the tech companies to do it for us, then why are we holding our breath? Yeah. Why don't we do things today that we can we can make sure put these these technologies in their place? Now, this is a bit different, well, very different from I think from 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 smoking because smoking is something that eventually you can just stop altogether. Right. Technology is extra tricky. It's kind of like with food for somebody who's on a diet. Yeah. It, it's you you can't without it. You still have and to so eat. That's yeah. Why I, yeah, you still have to eat. You still have to use technology. If you want a job these days, who you know, you can't just stop checking email. You're going to get fired. Yeah, yeah. So I think for you know, so for some professor in an ivory tower to say, oh yeah, just stop using your technology, yeah. that's not effective. And and it's terrible advice if you think about for our kids. We don't want our kids to be terrified that technology is melting their brain. No, the jobs of the future are going to require tech literacy. Yeah. And so we want to teach them how to get the best of these tools without letting them get the best of us. That that's really the the, the idea behind this methodology. Unfortunately, I do think there's a lot of people who can raise a lot of money for their organization, who can rally public support if they're a politician. Uh, we see that now happening in, in Washington around this idea that big bad tech is is doing this to you. Partially, I mean, I think partially it is uh, because tech has screwed up. There have been right. a lot of shipwrecks when it comes to things. And I'm not excusing the tech companies for those things. There's lots of things that they deserve greater scrutiny around. It's just this one particular thing of this myth that it's that it's hijacking your brain, that it's addicting everyone. That, I think, is is not true and not helpful. Yeah, I mean, in your eyes, I mean, as someone who pays attention to this stuff, what is uh, – you hear the dracon like the the draconian style measures that 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 they really want to some politicians want to take to sort of curb the tech company's ability to engage us is that even remotely possible or is that purely this sort of grandstanding thing that they some of them do cuz i i'm just thinking about like the google testimony when when chuck grassley was sort of grilling and and these people it's like they it's like they literally have no idea what they're talking about <laughs> but to some people, I think that they think, and maybe they're right, it sounds good to them because they right. want to sort of poke the bad guy and, and get back at them and make them look bad, whatever it is, you know? Right. I think there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I think I think one thing that I, I, I sympathize with is that um, we are desperate for answers. Yeah. You know, and I, and I didn't I didn't vote for for uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> Far from it. But I think after the election, I think a lot of of people. Uh, who did not vote for Donald Trump are were desperate for answers. Yeah, and the answer, the real answer, that you know what, a lot of people in this country were pissed off. Yeah, that wasn't palatable. We didn't want to believe that people would make a rational choice by by voting for Donald Trump. We wanted to blame Russia, not that they didn't have some influence. It was puny. They, you know, it was minuscule right. compared to what you would compare to, you know, Fox News had a million times the impact of what Russia or Facebook had on the election. Right. Uh, we didn't want to believe that, you know what, people are suffering in this country and we're looking for a change. Uh, we didn't want to believe that that after 
uh, you know, uh, uh, two terms of one party, the th- the other party tends to go in the yeah, White House. That's right. what tends to happen historically. It's only happened, a, you know, a handful of times that that has not been the case. So we were looking for something to blame. This is always the case. We look for a scapegoat. And so we look for what's new, what's different. Well, last time we didn't have Facebook. Uh, now we do. It's interesting, by the way. I remember before the most recent election uh, that uh, back when, when Obama used Facebook, uh, his his campaign manager was at every tech company, you know, praised as this genius who <laughs> led this grassroots effort on Facebook and how successful the Obama campaign was yeah. when the results weren't what we wanted. And I would consider myself in that camp yeah. politically. And then we got all upset. So <laughs> right? true. I mean, when I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we were looking for something. And I think that's that's really tainted the the uh, uh, the, the the well here. Unfortunately, I think the byproduct of that, when we are, you know, this and this always happens with with scapegoats. This always happens with simple answers. By by believing in these simplistic answers, we don't actually solve the problem. Yeah, we we haven't done anything to improve the livelihood of people, uh, it, it, you know, in the red states. We haven't actually t- taken care of these systemic issues. We haven't quelled the anger and 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 fixed whatever is is, is really the issue. We just say, oh, okay, Facebook did it. You know, the Russians did it. Done. Yeah, so true. Yeah. I mean, it's the boogeyman thing. It's exactly what we're talking about in every other arena. It's so when you don't understand and you have to dig deep to understand, it's almost this knee jerk. Well, there's a reason. There's this villain, this bad guy. And, And when Russia was put forth as a possibility, it was so desired it was so wanted an an easy explanation for how this ultimately confusing thing happened that it wasn't even like well is it true is it not true it was it has to be true i knew there was a reason that's the reason and i and and it's it's a dangerous way to go for the reasons you're describing i mean it it not only isn't it 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 it's true to the degree that it's true russia meddled whatever but it the, the impact that it had was minuscule when compared to things here that we can actually do something about, you know, it's, right. it's this almost, right. it, 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 it really is this, it, it's, it's simplistic and it's almost on purpose. It's, it, it's so much easier to take it that way that when you look right. at it from afar, you understand, well, that's like, it's just a magic pill and it makes you feel better to think it was them. It was that that's the end. Right. And, th- and this is this is, you know, somebody asked me the other day what my greatest fear is, what keeps me up at night. And my answer was simple answers. Yeah, that uh, we, we love simple answers and they turn out almost never to be right. And, and I think, you know, in the scientific community, we call this the difference between effect and effect size. Mm. So when you do a study and you look at the data and you look for correlation, you say, OK, here's a bunch of different factors. What affected the final output, uh, the final outcome, I should say? And so many things can have an effect, but the effect size be puny. So a good example of this is uh, we've heard a lot lately around how teenagers, uh, the, the amount of screen time that, that, that kids spend with, uh, with their devices uh, leads to a decline in psychological well-being. Hmm. And so uh, there, there's an author called uh, Jean Twenge who wrote this book, iGen. She wrote this article that went ironically viral online called uh, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Everybody <laughs> read it. Everybody got freaked out. And the study that she cites, if you actually look at the data, you know, she was saying, hey, look, there's a correlation between a decrease in psychological well-being and screen time. But if you actually – and she's right. She's right. There is a correlation. But if you look at the data, 
if you actually look, and this was this isn't according to me, this is according to uh, Scientific American, mm-hmm. who published this, who published an, a study uh, uh, that that looked into the data she used, the effect size of what she was describing was equivalent to eating potatoes. <laughs> Like literally the, the amount of effect it had of using screen time for five, six hours a day had the same effect as eating potatoes. <laughs> it was something like – I don't know if this is precise, but it was something like 10 times uh, – the, the effect of missing uh, – of getting a poor night's sleep was 10 times worse than the effect size of, of screen time. Yeah. And this is where we get confused. You know, We love the simple story. with We love the effect. We don't want to think about the effect size in terms of, okay, how big yeah. of a difference what did this make? Well, that's too confusing. My, I'm tired. <laughs> Let me Just give me the simple story. Yeah. It's almost this, there's this vacuum for narrative. And one, when one emerges, when one becomes available, especially when, it's, when it involves no responsibility, I just feel like that's people, it's just so easy to run with that. And it gives, it, it's, it's possible to get tunnel vision when you, even when, you know, someone who, chalks those studies up to that it's almost you could totally understand why their brain would go there because there's a narrative there there's a story to tell you know right, and i think right. that that the truth is there's not always a story to tell you know there's not there's no narrative necessarily there's 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 it's multivaried it's not it's not so easy to swallow you know it rarely is ever about anything you know yet we constantly seek that and and look for that and when we find something that makes sense and it fits and it seems like it works that's what we take yeah that's so true i i you couldn't be more on point because the story the the truth of you know what it depends yeah that's not a headline yeah there's no there's no interesting story as you said to the truth which is it depends is technology harmful it depends. Right. It depends on who uses it, how much they use it, what they do with it, and what they would do instead of using it. I'll give you a great example. Yeah. So it is true that teen suicide has risen from a historic low in 2014. 2014 was a freakishly low year for teen suicides, and it has risen uh, in that time. So, of course, where they show the graphs of teen suicide rising, that's where they start. Right. <laughs> it's from the history. In the 80s, actually, teen suicide was just as high as it is today. Uh. We don't know why, but they don't they don't zoom out the x-axis on the graph to show you that. They only say, oh, my God, it's gone up a tremendous amount. Okay, sure. granted, let's give them that. What they don't tell you is where teen suicide is rising. Mm. So teen suicide is only rising in the U.S. and the U.K., it's not rising in any other OECD country. It's falling in Japan. It's falling in the Nordic countries, even though they've had the same technologies longer than we have, greater adoption rate. That doesn't make any sense. And even in the U.S., teen suicide is not rising in urban areas. Mm. It is only rising in rural areas. Again, it's the red states. Yeah. Why would that be? We don't really know. But there is some kind of cancer going on in the heartland of this country that we are not addressing. Maybe it's lack of access to healthcare. Yeah. That could be. I mean, there's a doctor shortage right now in the heartland. You know, we don't talk about these issues, but that wouldn't make sense if if it's the technology that's causing the rise in teen suicide. Well, we would expect the places that have the highest penetration and usage of of these technologies to show the highest rate of teen suicide. Right. That's not what's happening. It's not happening in urban areas. It's only happening in in the in the rural areas. So that's something to think about. Now, another thing we don't consider is that 
while this one metric is going up of teen suicide is increasing, everything else that kills kids is at record lows. Right. So teen homicide, record low. Truancy, record low. Drug use, record lows. Uh, uh, traffic accidents, record lows. Pregnancy, record lows. All the bad stuff that kids used to do in their free time is at record lows. All the mischief that kids used to cause, like in our generation, right. they're doing less and less of. So you have to ask yourself, if we are going to blame tech for the bad stuff that started occurring around 2007, 2008, why aren't we also looking at some of the good stuff? When was the last article you hmm. read that showed the correlation that is occurring? We don't know causation. Causation is a whole other subject. Right. But clearly there is correlation between the advent of these phones and the decrease in all of the stuff that used to kill kids. I mean, this was the generation of the super predator. Remember yeah. that? Remember yeah. that? Everybody would say, oh, this generation is going to be the worst generation in history because of the super predators. There are juvenile detention centers across the country that are empty wow. because kids aren't committing the crimes they used to. Why? Yeah. Well, if you wanted to invent a device to keep kids safe indoors, off the streets, well, maybe you would invent something <laughs> like a video game, or like, you know? Yeah. So we have to, and I'm not saying that there aren't potential negative things that happen online. Of course there are. Of there's course. bullying. There's all kinds of, hey, too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Right. right? So, yeah. you know, reading too much Harry Potter is bad. Spending five hours on Facebook is probably not that good for you either. But we have to give credit where credit is due and realize that the que the answer to this question of is it good, is it bad, the answer is always it depends. It's yeah. more complicated than just this black and white view. Why, why do you, is it, is it our negative? I think you use the term negativity bias, right? I mean, is it, it, why can't we look at those things and say, well, look, tech is doing great stuff too. Is it because we're, we're not going to click or is it because it, that's the competition? Is it a confluence of those things? Like what, what do you think that is? Because I, 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 th I don't, I, I get the boogeyman stuff. I get why you would want to create this enemy, but I don't, and I, I don't get why you, why there can't also be this exploration of how, of course, how is it changing us? But not only is it, not only how is it changing us for the worse, you know, uh, right. how is it changing us for the better? You never see that question asked in a headline or in a public. I see it. I don't know if I have seen that, to be honest. Right. Well, so so I was a journalism minor in, in college, and I remember there were a few rules that we learned. And one of the rules was if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And so we want the guts, the horror, the the the, the fear. That's what we I mean, talk about, you know, companies manipulating us. When yeah. we talk about, you know, the the psychological tricks that companies use on us. Well, the, the media uh, uses these tactics of of negativity bias, of recency bias. They use these psychological quirks to get us to pay attention because of course they're in the same business. They want to sell us ads. They right. sell our eyeballs to advertisers just like Facebook and Twitter do. Yeah. And, and so they know that if something leads with fear, then that is something we will pay attention to. Uh, there's also this, this mantra repeated in, in, in newsrooms that the job of the media is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Ah. Uh. So the fact that you know these these uh, these tech guys are and most of them are, are guys unfortunately or fortunately or unfortunately you know unfortunately, sure we clearly need more diversity but sure. the fact that there are so many uh, billionaires out there uh, you know this is something that I think is easy to to hate yeah. is easy to to uh, to not praise 
uh, when someone makes you know as much money as a Zuckerberg or a Bezos does. And so uh, you, you know, like I said, I think it's this perfect storm of of the media incentives to drive more clicks, to drive more attention. Uh, our penchant to want to believe simple answers, uh, plus the fact that the the tech companies have screwed up in many ways. They have uh, tainted their public perception because of legitimate grievances. Uh, and I think this has led us to a point where we've moved away from skepticism, which I think is very healthy. I mean, we should be skeptical. But now we've moved into cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I think that is not healthy. Yeah. Now, they can do no right. It used to be they could do no wrong. Now they can do no right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we've we the pendulum has swung too far. And I think that also has some deleterious consequences because that means that uh, you know we become less likely to want to innovate, right? If 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 uh, you're a kid and you're trying to figure out, hey, where should I work? What where, where should I devote my human capital? Maybe you're going to think twice about working for a tech company that could do a lot of good in the world right. because you think, oh, all these people are shysters and they're and they're all addicting everyone. Yeah. Uh, and you become a, a cynic as opposed to a skeptic. I, I think that really has some some adverse consequences. It is. It is interesting to think about, you know, the media sort of painting tech as this villain, uh, big brother, whatever you want to call. It. Obviously, there, there are elements of truth to that. As you say, they have screwed up. But. As you also say, the media does, the classic media, the older media, TV, the news, do they do the exact same thing. If you put on yep. any news channel, it's like a gazillion graphics, stay tuned, this is coming up next, cliffhangers. Absolutely. Do, like super cool music, you know, like impeachment <laughs> yeah. special. Like it's like, yeah. it's it the same shit. It's the same shit. Senator Howley uh, had this bill, uh, in, in, you know, the senator wanted to uh, make autoplay video illegal. Yeah. Right? So he wants it so that uh, when you watch YouTube video, he wants to ban autoplay videos. And we can debate whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. But if we are going to apply this to tech, you know, last time I checked, Fox News was on autoplay for decades now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? People are sitting. <laughs> where yeah. where is, the, is the equal treatment in terms of, of, of these potential distractions? You know, I, there are people who are clearly addicted to news media. We yeah. call them news junkies. Yeah. And yet we don't talk about that because that's an old, boring technology, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's so true, yeah. Yeah, also, you know, uh, and I, I, we're hitting an hour here, so it's probably time to wrap up soon. But, but uh you hit on something earlier that I wanted to bring up again, which is this idea that I think about this a lot where the news, classic news, TV news, it's they go for the soundbite. Whereas on a podcast, there's this long form, deep dive, multi-layered conversation happening. And I think when I – if I didn't know and if I didn't see the sort of like the podcast boom, whatever you want to talk about, if I didn't know that that – was true when people love podcasts and some and very often prefer them to news. I would think there's no fucking way the diminishing attention span we hear we constantly hear about. There's no way people will sit here and listen to a conversation like this for an hour instead of listening to the soundbite news on CNN, the doomsday stuff about tech, all that shit. But it's really it's really eye opening how how willing and how ready people are to turn away from the classic older sort of soundbite news thing because now when i watch the actual news when i turn on cnn or whatever it's it it almost comes across like a joke of itself and i think it's yeah. probably because i've been listening to podcasts more and and just sort of my brain is not ready to receive those sort of short 
quick hit, super hyperbolic things that people are saying on those channels. It's almost, it plays like satire to me, you know, and you don't really get that in a deeper conversation ever, you know, and I think that runs a little counter to what you often hear, which is that attention spans shorter, people don't do things for whatever it is, you know, it's kind of heartening and, and, and nice to see that that people are sort of and I, i'm hoping it's true that there's this sort of shift to this multi-layered conversation as opposed to this sort of older soundbite style of news you know i i couldn't agree more with you and i think that um thank god for these technologies that allow these alternative perspectives yeah you know it's so easy for us to forget yeah uh the the, the what we have you know it, it, these changes happen so quickly and yet we forget about what things used to be like a few years ago you know when, when you used to run a political campaign uh, a few generations ago not even a, a one generation ago it was only the traditional stakeholders yeah and i think what we're seeing now is is uh, this fifth estate that's you know that we we've, we've got the press is the fourth estate checking the power of the government but then we also have this fifth estate of social media of podcasting of long-form content and the power for anyone to create this stuff and and disseminate it. Now, of course, we also get some bad stuff. Out sure, there. yeah. Marketplace of ideas. We clearly, you know, we have people connecting of all types, and so I don't think you would have had uh, Me Too and and Black Lives Matter were it not for the internet. And you yeah. also wouldn't have some of the bad stuff and right. the hate speech as well. But I think overall, I think this is amazing. This is helping us improve because it gives a place for people like us and for people listening to hear alternative perspectives that aren't, you know, crammed into tiny headlines and, and sound bites. I mean, it's, it, it is absolutely ridiculous when you look at, yeah. at, at the lack of nuance. And I think that's really where I come down in this debate. It's not pro-tech. It's not anti-tech. That's silly. I'm pro nuance. Yeah. That's what I want. I want people to understand that these type of questions, it's never black and white. If you want black and white, if you want good and evil, go read a fairy tale. That yeah. is not real life and it's not helpful. That's so true. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Nir, I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy dude. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours and I, I, I just want to say thank you. Uh, if there's anything you want to leave uh, our listeners with, please uh, feel free. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So uh, my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R, nearandfar.com. And the book that just came out is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And if you go to indistractable.com, there's a free workbook that we couldn't fit into the final book that you can get there for free. It's all there at indistractable.com. So cool. Thank you so much. And yeah, I'll talk to you soon, man. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Do 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 do